Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, good morning to all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are meeting together at one of our regionals around the city and also up in Airdrie and those of you who are watching online. We continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount in in which Jesus paints a magnificent picture of what it means to be the people of the kingdom of God in contrast to living for the kingdom of this world. You see, there are at least two major kingdoms that seek to captivate our attention and also our allegiance and seek to persuade us to believe certain things, to want certain things, and to spend our money in certain ways and live our, wa- our lives a certain way. One kingdom could be called the kingdom of this world. The other Jesus refers to here in the sermon as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world boldly asserts that it's all about me. You deserve to be happy, so look out for number one. Don't suppress your desires. Just go for the gusto. If it feels good, do it. And folks, that is why our world is in the mess that it's in. The mindset of those who live for the kingdom of this world is, I'm going to hoard, I'm going to grab, and I'm going to inquire all that I can for myself. I don't really care who I step on as I climb the ladder of success. The rule that I follow is, do to others as they do to you. If you treat me well, well, then we're going to get along just peachy. If you don't, then you better watch your back. I don't care about we, I care about me, my life, my comfort, my image, my success, and my accomplishments. I am the center of my universe. I am the king of my kingdom. Now, even though few would ever admit that this is their heart motivation, fundamentally, this is the mindset of those who are giving their lives to the kingdom of this world. And friends, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to introduce a new kingdom, his kingdom. He came to introduce a new way of thinking and living, a new way of relating to one another that begins by removing ourselves from the center of the universe and instead surrendering our lives to God and letting him take his rightful place as the Lord and King of my life. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially says, those who belong to his kingdom and acknowledge him as their Lord and King will increasingly display supernatural qualities of God's Spirit working in them that will be counter-opposite to the self-centeredness that I just described a moment ago. 
They are poor in spirit, humble and dependent on God, not only for their salvation, but their direction in life. They mourn. They grieve over the things that break the heart of God. They are meek. They're not preoccupied with themselves. They hunger and thirst to know Jesus and to be like Jesus. They're merciful. They extend grace, forgiveness, and compassion to others. They are pure in heart in the sense that they have a single-minded devotion to seek God and His agenda for their lives. They are peacemakers. They're devoted to helping people be at peace with God, but also with one another. And they are prepared to be persecuted, to pay a high price in terms of sacrificing their time and their resources, even their very life if necessary, to live all out for Jesus. And in our scripture lesson today, Jesus sums up his entire sermon in just one sentence. And he teaches us how we might practically live this way each day of our lives. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verse 12. It's only one verse, but I'm going to ask that you would stand, and I want us to read it together, slowly. Let's stand together and read it. So, I'm just kidding, okay. (laughs) Here we go. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You may be seated. Now imagine how different our city would look if people lived out this principle. There would be no more need to lock our doors. No concerns about having our kids walk to the local school. No concerns about our children spending the morning playing at the local park. There'd be no homelessness, no office politics, no anger or speaking in vicious tongues and sign language on Deerfoot Trail. (laughs) Imagine if all marriages, every family, every church lived out this principle on a consistent basis. There'd be no relational breakdowns, no domestic violence, no hurtful gossip, no stinginess, no loneliness. It's with that in mind, I'd like us to stop for a moment just now and to come to the Lord in prayer. And as we approach him, I have a question for you. And the question is this, who is your enemy? And I'm sure many of you are thinking, I I don't have one of those. You know, I love everybody and that's wonderful. So let me put it this way. Who are you having a really hard time extending grace to? Who are you having a really hard time treating as you would like to be treated? Would you ask Jesus that as we go to prayer? That he might reveal that person or those people to you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... 
Thank you for sending Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your teaching, for your life, your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for these words. Lord, help us to understand them, what your intent was. Soften our minds right now and our hearts. Give clarity to our thoughts. And then, Lord, particularly as we think of those individuals that we're struggling with right now, I pray that you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the passage of Scripture that we just read together a moment ago is often referred to as the golden rule. It is probably the most universally quoted and famous thing that Jesus ever said. And as a result, it is also one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible today as well. And so before we go any further, I just want to clarify what the golden rule is not teaching. To begin with, the golden rule is not the way to heaven. You see, some people believe that as long as they abide by the golden rule, try to live it out in their lives, that they are going to find favor with God come judgment day. And on that day, they will be granted eternal life. And yet in chapter 5, verse 1, we read, when Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down, it says it was his disciples who came to him and he began to teach them. Now, likely there were other people who were listening in, but the Bible clearly stipulates that Jesus was talking to believers here or those who had already committed their lives to him. Now, much more could be said about this, but the short version of this is the golden rule is not a description of how to become a Christian or how to get to heaven. Rather, the golden rule is a description of how a Christian lives. In the same way that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of how the Christian lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the golden rule is not to be used to avoid responsibility or justice. We need to be cautious about applying the golden rule when we're dealing with someone who is consistently irresponsible or lacking integrity. To enable someone to continue on a pathway of destruction, even though they may not see it that way, but to continue to enable that is not to be truly loving. Or suppose a man has committed a crime, he has been found guilty by the jury, he is now facing the judge for sentencing. A judge would not be carrying out justice or doing his job if he were to use the golden rule here and ask himself, if I were in this person's place, how would I like to be treated? Obviously, the golden rule does not apply here, or our society would face anarchy. Now, with those two caveats in mind, it goes without saying that this statement that Jesus um, communicated here is absolutely brilliant and profound. No other religion or religious leader has ever taught this before. 
Oh, virtually every major philosopher and major religious leader taught something very similar to what Jesus taught here, but no one ever said it the way that Jesus did. And as you're going to see in a moment, the way that Jesus communicated this makes all the difference in the world. For example, 500 years ago in the Orient, Confucius taught, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. 400 years before Christ, Socrates taught, what stirs your anger when done to you by others, that do not do to others. 20 years before Jesus was born, the famous Hebrew rabbi, Hillel, he taught, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. Now, all of these teachings are often referred to as the silver rule because even though they, are, they, they communicate a very good truth, if you look at all of them, they are negative and passive. The silver rule is excellent as far as it goes, but it can be accomplished by simply doing nothing. If, for example, you want to be a perfect driver, <laughs> okay, if you want to be a perfect driver, according to the silver rule, all you need to do is to stop driving. You got it nailed. You know, just don't drive anymore. If you want to be the perfect citizen, you know, pay your taxes, pay your bills, and leave everybody alone. Just don't do anything. According to the silver rule, that makes you a perfect citizen. Well, Jesus changes the focus from the negative to the positive, from being passive to being active. He challenges us not just to sit back passively, but to actually take action and to make a difference in life by actively pursuing good for others and forgetting about ourselves. And so when it comes to driving... The silver rule focuses on keeping the law and says, don't, don't, don't. Don't run over people. Not a good idea. Don't drink and drive. Don't go through stop signs. The golden rule assumes all of that, of course, but adds this. If God has resourced you with a car and given you the ability to drive it, and you discover that the widow next door is in desperate need for a ride, then go out of your way to offer it to her. Now, I need to alert you to, to something at this point. Jesus does not say that we're to do to others in hopes or with the motivation that they will do it to us in return. At stake here is no such practical value as honesty pays or you scratch my back and I'll scratch you. Scratch yours. Or whatever. <laughs> it's been a long morning. Okay. <laughs> it's, it, it's not like, you know, you encourage me and then I'll encourage you. Oh, you did so good this morning. Wow, thank you. You did too. That is not what we're talking about here, okay? As I said earlier, this is the mindset and the motivation of those who are living for the kingdom of this world. Jesus says in verse 12, the reason that we're to do to others 
what we would want them to do to us is because such behavior sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, such behavior actually reflects the heart of those who are part of the kingdom of God. It enhances the work and the mission of the kingdom of God, which is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You see, all through the sermon, Jesus is saying that our primary attitude and our primary motivation must never be self-advancement or self-preservation, but it should be to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It should be to seek first the interests of others rather than that of our own. In short, to do to others as we would have them do to us. Which leads us to ask, how do we consistently practice the golden rule in our lives? Well, the short answer is this. Look upward. Look inward. Look outward. Let me unpack that a little bit. The first step is to look upward. It all starts with our relationship to God. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then notice what he says next. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, in the same way that the golden rule sums up the law and the prophets in one sentence, Jesus says you can boil down the entire Bible to two commandments or to two principles. Love God above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice the order in which these are given. First we're to love God and then we're to love others. You don't start with your neighbor, you start with God. Jesus makes it very clear here that our capacity to love others with an agape love or a divine love flows out of our friendship with God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 6. Because in that chapter, Jesus differentiates between human love and divine love. In verse 32, he describes human love this way. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? I mean, even sinners love those who love them. Anybody who does that is what he's saying. Human love is a feeling. And it depends on the person who is loved. You do good to those who do good to you. As long as you meet my needs and scratch my back, I can love you back. The moment that changes, my love for you changes. That's human love. In verse 27, Jesus describes God's love or agape love this way. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus says divine love is so strong that it even loves enemies. 
It is so deep that it endures even when a spouse or another person feels more like an enemy than a friend. And that is because human love is a feeling that focuses on what the other person is or isn't doing to me or for me. Whereas divine love is a decision that focuses on being the kind of person that God calls me to be. And you see, when Jesus says the golden rule sums up the heart of the Bible, he's assuming that we have the divine love of God pulsating within us. Because, friends, you can't give what you don't have. You can't give unconditional love if you don't have the love of God within you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because God first loved us. You can't keep the golden rule in your own strength. Oh, you can fake it for a while, but the human selfish part of you will begin to surface again over time because you see, human love is fueled by only one thing, and that is receiving human love back. And human nature being as selfish as it is, what that means is over time, the love that you give to your spouse or whoever won't come back in the same measure. And when that happens, human love begins to die. When my spouse no longer respects me, even though I seek to love her, when my spouse no longer encourages me, even though I seek to encourage him, when my spouse no longer hugs me, even though I try to hug her, pretty soon, human love begins to die. You see, trying to practice human love in your own strength, trying to practice the golden rule without God is like drawing power from a battery that's not being recharged. Sooner or later, that battery is going to run dry. But not so when you have the source of all power, of all love living right in you and living his love, life of love through you. Now, the only way to have the divine love of God in you is to embrace Jesus by faith and to surrender your life to him. When you do, he's going to invade your life and begin to transform you from the inside out. God the Holy Spirit will fill you with his love and joy and peace and begin to melt your self-centeredness and replace it with a patience and a kindness and a goodness and a faithfulness and a gentleness and a self-control of Jesus himself. But that requires that we deal with our junk and our sin and we invite him to invade our lives. You know, before he became a Christ follower, best-selling author Lee Strobel, he describes himself in his book, Case for Christ, as a hard-nosed, self-centered, rude, vulgar, uncaring atheist. 
who would have no problem stepping on anyone to take care of his own interests. And yet when he went on a search to prove that Christianity was false, he started to do that after his wife became a Christ follower. And so he went on this search to prove that Christianity was false. And in the end, when he discovered that the evidence overwhelmingly pointed to the validity of the Christian faith, he decided to become a Christ follower. And when Jesus invaded his life, his character and his attitude and his lifestyle changed so dramatically that only a few months after he became a Christian, his five-year-old daughter said to his wife, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. Strobel says, even at that young age, my daughter could see that God had already started to chip away at the cynicism and the self-centeredness that had corroded her daddy's heart. And friend, in the same way, when Jesus invades your life, he will fill you with his divine love and you will never be the same again. Practicing the golden rule begins by looking up, by daily surrendering our lives to the God of all creation and allowing him to change us, to transform us, and to live his life of love through us. Furthermore, consistently practicing the golden rule involves looking inward. The reality is when you contemplate practicing the golden rule, fear is going to get a hold of you. You're going to have all kinds of emotions percolating around inside of you. And so here you have a person who says to himself, well, if I release my grip on my stuff and I give sacrificially to help someone, or if I give to my church in its mission to reach and help people here and around the world, how do I know that I'm going to have enough money in the future to take care of myself if my circumstances change? You see, that's fear. Or a person says, if I reach out to this person, and I begin to treat them the way that I would want them to treat me, what happens if this relationship requires a whole lot more than I'm prepared or able to give? What if I'm not able? What if this thing gets complicated and, and, and there's so, much, so many needs and, and, and things that I'm asked to respond to and I don't have the time, I don't have the energy to do that? How am I going to do that? You see, folks, that's fear. Or, or if I decide to say really nice things to my boss about my fellow employee, what happens if he gets promoted and I don't? See, that's insecurity. Well, look at verse 12 again. Before Jesus gives the golden rule, he starts out by saying, so. Another word that could be used there is the word Therefore. Now, all of those of you who are Bible scholars, you know that every time you run into the word therefore, you ask what it's there for, right? Well, it's there to point us back 
to what Jesus said previously in verses 7 to 11, in which he says, our heavenly Father loves to give us good gifts when we come to him with our needs and we ask and we seek and we knock. In other words, he says, trust me in this. If you are generous with your time and your money and you do to others what you would want them to do for you, you need not fear or worry about running out of time or energy or having nothing left to live on because when you are living in humble dependence on me and obeying me, Jesus says, you can come to me at any time and ask for my wisdom, you can ask for my power, you can ask for my help, and I will meet your needs. Not your wants, but I'll meet your needs. And so practicing the golden rule involves looking upward to God, and it involves looking inward to our fears and our trust in God. Finally, practicing the golden rule involves looking outward. Daily deciding to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus keeps it really simple. He says, start out by asking yourself, how would I like to be treated? What are the things that help me, that encourage me? I want to encourage you to do that when you have your quiet time later today or tomorrow. Pull out your journal and begin to write down your answers to those questions. And then when you come in contact with people and you're wondering how you should relate to them, you're wondering, and if they're facing a need, you're wondering you know, how you should respond to their need. Ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of how you like to be treated. And then make a decision to treat them the way that you want to be treated or would want to be treated. So let me get real practical at this point. In Luke chapter 6, which I referred to earlier, in verse 27, Jesus challenges us to love our enemies, which is one of the hardest things we will do in this life. But if we can actually get to the place of loving our enemies, we will not have much trouble loving anybody else. So think of the person that you would consider your enemy, whom I referred to earlier. Or think of the person that you're upset with. Or think of the person that you just find annoying, draining, just difficult to love. Well, here in verse 27, Jesus says, I want you to love them in three ways. He says, I want you to bless them. I want you to do good to them. And I want you to pray for them. Let's unpack those for a moment. First of all, Jesus calls us to bless others. Ask yourself, how do you want people to treat you and to relate to you? Do you want others to be real, to be vulnerable and open with you? Well, then Jesus would say, bless them by being real and open yourself. Do you appreciate people who are trustworthy and reliable and genuinely humble? Well, then bless them by not being arrogant yourself, being reliable and trustworthy. 
Are you drawn to people who are gentle, pleasant, approachable, and easygoing? Well, then bless them by living out these qualities in your own life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you enjoy people who are accepting, who aren't legalistic or hypersensitive? Then bless them by being gracious yourself. Bless them by being positive and thankful and truly forgiving yourself. And Jesus said, bless those who curse you. If you want to be blessed, then be a blessing to others in the way that we've just talked about. Furthermore, Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. In other words, do the right thing. Do the godly thing, even if it hurts, even if it costs you. Be a person of integrity. Walk the talk. Practice what you preach. Ask yourself, you know, if everyone in my family were just like me, what would our family life be like? That can be a, you know, that can kind of mess you up if you think about that too long. If everyone were just like me, what shape would our house be in? That can mess you up even more. Do you want God to be at the center of your family life? Well, then do good by daily inviting Jesus to be at the center of your own life. Do you want your home to be fun-loving and peaceful? Then do good by asking the Lord to help you not to take yourself too seriously and to see life from his eternal perspective rather than from your temporary perspective. If you want there to be respect, if you want there to be kindness, acceptance, honesty, transparency, good communication in your family, then do good by cultivating those qualities in your life. In your workplace, whether you're an employer or an employee, whether you're a supervisor or a staff member, how would you like to be treated? Well, then treat others that way. If everyone in your workplace had your attitude, if everyone in your workplace had your work ethic, what would your workplace be like? Would the company make any money? However you answer those questions, Jesus would say, do good by treating others the way that you would want them to treat you. Or take Christ's call on our lives as Christians. How friendly, how caring, how hospitable would our church be? How effective would our outreach to our community and our world be? How vibrant would our ministry be to children and youth if everyone was as committed and as involved as you are? 
What kind of prayer support and financial support would there be for our church and our ministry to the poor and to our city and to the people around the world if everyone was as prayerful and as generous as you are? Whatever you believe that Jesus wants his church to be, and the Bible will communicate that to you, do good by doing your part to live it out in your own life. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. He says, do good to those who hate you. And then finally, he says, pray for those who mistreat you. When you pray for your enemy or that person that you're at odds with, you're taking the focus off that person and you're placing it on Jesus. And you know, and you can't focus on Jesus very long without your heart being changed about that person. And if you refuse to change your heart about that person and to humble yourself, then you're going to have a hard time talking to Jesus. So how do you pray for your enemy? How do you pray for that person that you're struggling with? Or how do you pray for anyone for that matter? And Jesus would say, put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, if I were them, if I were facing what they're facing, how would I want to be prayed for? Ask Jesus to help you to really appreciate their situation, to enter into their situation And as he reminds you of what it means to be in their shoes, begin to bring those things to God in prayer. It will revolutionize the way that you pray. It will change your heart toward that person you're struggling with. Instead of seeking to get even, God will slowly melt your anger and create a desire in your heart to bless them and to do good to them. I'll close with this. Well, over 20 years ago, uh, a woman in the community that we used to live in, she phoned me up in tears. And she was a mother of four, and for reasons I won't go into, they were being asked to vacate their home in a very short period of time. They were in desperate need, not only for lodging, but also they were running out of food. And we knew them because some of their children were in the same classes as our sons. Her husband was unemployed, and she was calling, asking for prayer. I promised that we would pray, but I hadn't even hung up the phone yet, and I immediately sensed the Lord speaking to me about being available to answer that prayer. Have you ever had that happen to you? It's annoying, isn't it? Ah. Anyways, as much as I tried, the question, that question that I couldn't get out of my mind was, if your family was facing this situation, how would you want to be treated? Didn't like that question. All night long, I tossed and I turned, unable to sleep. That question just kept coming at me, kept coming at me. I kept, you know my sleep someone else Lord someone else but I knew I wasn't going to get any sleep until I surrendered and said yes to the Lord 
And so the next morning, I called an emergency family meeting and told them of the situation and what I believe God was calling us to do. And we agreed as a family to invite this family to come live with us for a time until they were able to get back on their feet. Now, having 12 people share a three-bedroom home was not overly easy or pleasant. It felt more like a boot camp than a home. And I'll admit that there were days I'd wake up in the morning, I found myself welling up with fear, wondering, what have we gotten ourselves into here? And, and where is this all going to lead to? But in the weeks that followed, by the grace of God, we were able to find the father a job. We were able to uh, help the family find a place to live, all of which served to renew their hope and their faith in God. But as wonderful as this experience was for them, the takeaway for our family was even richer. Because all of us learned firsthand what it meant to make the invisible Christ visible through a loving act of compassion. We learned firsthand the joy of doing unto others what you would have them do to you. My family could have heard me preach on sacrifice and service 50 times and not been affected this way. You see, folks, I call that quality family time. Not just picnics and parties and fun-filled family nights watching videos or camping on, away on weekends, but experiencing together the joy of demonstrating Christ's love to the hurting and the spiritually hungry around us. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then down in verse 25, James wraps up this thought and he says, those who do what the word says will be blessed in what they do. Regardless of whether God calls you to do a simple act of kindness or to do something that will involve great sacrifice on your part, where whenever you do for others what you would have them do for you, you're going to be blessed. Because you're going to feel God's warm smile of approval in your life for being obedient to Him and honoring Him. You're going to be blessed because you'll see the impact of kindness and compassion in the life of another human being. You're going to be blessed when you realize that God has used your obedience to change the eternal trajectory of someone. Yes, we have and we will continue to fail and fall short of God's call in our lives. But I want to challenge us all to ensure that our life is defined by more than what we don't do or what we didn't do, but that we will grasp the heart of Jesus here and step out and take the initiative to get involved, to engage in what he's calling us to do. I'll never forget someone coming up to me after the sudden death of her father and confessing to me that she regretted not having closure with him. She had just kind of put off 
you know, having those conversations that she needed to have with her dad. And with tears streaming down her face, she said, I always figured I had lots of time to talk to him. Friends, doing to others what you would have them do for you means I relate to you as if this were the last time I see you this side of eternity. You husbands who are sitting there saying to yourself, I will love my wife the way that God calls me to love her when she comes around and she begins to respect and honor me the way that God calls her to. If you're thinking that, I've got news for you. Jesus is saying to you here, do you want to honor and obey me? If you do, then you humble yourself and you get off your duff and you start loving and cherishing your wife the way that you would want her to respect and to treasure you without thought of receiving anything back from her. And the same is true for you wives who are sitting there saying, I'll respect my husband. I'll be intimate with my husband when he loves me and cherishes me the way God calls him to. If you're thinking that, I've got news for you. Jesus is saying, do you want to honor and obey me? Then stop playing games and take the initiative. You humble yourself and start respecting and treasuring your husband the way that you want him loving and cherishing you without thought of getting anything back from him. You see, church, if something isn't right, in your relationship with someone else, whoever that might be, Jesus is saying here, don't you sit around waiting for the other person to make the first move. No, you take the initiative. You be the first one to take the risk, to be vulnerable, to make that phone call, to write that letter, to send that email, to not hold a grudge, to be gentle and vulnerable and forgiving, and to treat them the way that you would want them to treat you without expecting anything back from them. Oh, friends, I plead with you. Don't forget who you are. I plead with you. Don't forget who you belong to. You are the child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are a royal priesthood for whom Jesus died. And I remind you of that because God, as God's children, we must not forget that we are meant to look like our Father. We are meant to act and to be like the one that we worship. And one of the ways that we can make that a daily reality in our lives is with the Spirit's, Spirit's guidance and power to do to others what we would have them do for us. My prayer is that these words of Jesus would forever be etched in our minds and that the golden rule of Jesus would not only change the way that we live our lives, but transform the lives of those that Jesus brings into our lives. May it be so. 
to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for sending your son, Jesus. And Jesus, I want to thank you for these profound words and for showing us in such a simple way how we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we recognize that the only way that we can live live out the golden rule in our lives is to be in relationship with you, the author of love. And so I pray for anyone here who have come to realize today, perhaps for the very first time, that they can't give the love that they don't have and that they need you and your love to be in their lives. And I pray that this will be the day that they open up up their lives to you right now. That they will open up to you right now in faith and they will embrace you as their Savior and their Lord. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for slowly replacing our self-centeredness with the patience, the kindness, the goodness, and the gentleness of Jesus. As your followers, I ask that you would forgive us for those times that we've gone our own way, those times we've just taken a pathway of self-centeredness and just simply refused to do for others what we would want others to do for us. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us each day to live out this truth in our lives, even if it costs us, even if it involves sacrifice, knowing that we will be blessed one day, knowing that we have honored you through our obedience and that there are people on their way to heaven because of our decision to do to them as we would have others do to us. For I pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.